the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2. We've been ministering on the book of Acts, and last week we went into chapter 2. And I think just to get our minds and hearts in the right direction, we'll back up a little bit and speak about some of the things that we shared with you out of Acts 2. It says in Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all of one accord in one place, and there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we went through the different manifestations, supernatural manifestations here of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost, Peter later on in the book of Acts mentions, he says, he talks about that which they had heard and seen. The manifestation here comes forth, first of all, in the form of wind, a rushing mighty wind from heaven. And if you search through the Bible in various places on wind, wind is always a uh, is always used symbolically in the Holy Spirit. Not always, but the Holy Spirit sometimes is referred to in regard to wind. And I gave you some illustrations, like in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, where Ezekiel is taken to a great valley and seen a valley of bones, and he speaks to the valley, and the wind goes forth, and the bones become connected, and speaks of the restoration of the nation of Israel. And in John 3 and verse 8, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about being born again. And the question is raised, how can a man be born again when he's old? And Jesus says, every man must be born of the water and born of the Spirit. And then when he talks about the Holy Spirit working, he says it's like the wind and the trees. It's invisible. You can't see it, but you can see the effects thereof. We've never seen wind. We can feel it. We can hear it. But wind is something that you, you see the effects of the wind. You don't really see the, the wind in itself because it's invisible. And then secondly, there appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire. And the word in the Greek here speaks of cloven, speaks about the shape of the tongue. It was like there were literally tongues like your and I's physical tongue, that kind of a shape, and it was probably above their head, and it said there appeared, it's something that they saw upon each one of them, the symbol of fire in the shape of a tongue. And fire in the Bible speaks of judgment. A lot of times when, when I've, if I'm studying a commentary, studying someone on this particular chapter, they always, they always refer to a fire of judgment. And, of course, one Spirit is going to come and do a work of judgment. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to come and to do a work of purging in our lives. You remember when Jesus was baptized, that when he came up out of the water, there appeared a dove that came unto him. And that would be symbolic of the peace and the, the sinlessness of Jesus compared to these individuals a cloven tongue of fire speaks about the, the purging work of the fire of the Holy Spirit. And I give you several examples like 1 Peter 1, 7, Acts 14, 22. Of course, this is speaking about how it's through much trial and tribulation we enter into the kingdom. Psalm 12, 6, Proverbs 25, 4 speak about as silver is refined in the fire. And then Isaiah 48, 10 says that's what God does. He purges us through the fire. So the, the Holy Spirit has come to do a work in us, a purging us of the flesh, and to producing the life of Christ in us once again. And so fire is a symbol of God's holiness, his purging, his purifying, his cleansing, his warming, his guiding, and the revealing of his church, the glory of God. And then the third sign supernatural that is here is that we're told in verse 4, they began with, to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And tongues is what? Well, as you keep on reading, the tongues was various languages that he mentions, like in verse 9, 
Actually, verse 8 says, How hear we every man in our own tongue or language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and Egypt, and the parts of Libya around Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretes, Arabians. There were 120 different languages that were coming forth. And these men that were standing there witnessing this, they heard them speak in their own language, and they knew that they didn't know this language. It'd be like you, for example, maybe if you were raised in uh, the country of Greece, and so you knew Greek. And so you knew, and you go to a church somewhere, you knew Greek, but you know that nobody else knew Greek by the knowing of the people that were there. And yet, maybe what comes forth during a time of worship is someone brings forth a language, a tongue, and it's in Greek. And you know the interpretation of it just by hearing what is there. But later on, interpretation comes that confirms that, but it's a language. See, tongues are languages. They are known languages that God supernaturally enables us to speak. It's not something to be afraid of. It is not something that is a stigma. This last week I was on vacation, and I took with me several books on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I was studying them. And, I, and as I read them, I thought, why are Christian ministers so afraid to talk about tongues and the purpose of tongues, it seems like, seems like today they're making a whole lot of excuses about tongues. And there should not be any reason. It's a blessing from the Lord. This wasn't something that they, can, they looked at and uh, were embarrassed by it. They were blessed by what they received. And when they're asking the question to Peter, what does this mean? In verse 11, when they heard them speaking, they heard him uh, bringing forth the wonderful works of God. They were praising God, worshiping God in a language other than what they knew. And when they asked the question to Peter, what does this mean? In verse 12, Peter stood up and he said, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And he talked about the prophecy of Joel. Verse 17, this will come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men so green greens. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great notable day of the Lord. Two thousand years ago, when the day of Pentecost occurred, and they began to speak with their tongues, that was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. But at the same time, it was not a prophecy that was fulfilled and stopped because the prophecy continues right on into the day of the Lord, which is the end of the age. And so the church age is ushered in. And the church age, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs, when the Holy Spirit fills his people, that is something that was to continue to occur all the way through the church age. And it's confirmed later on in Acts 2, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we might want to read it real quickly. He says in verse 38, after speaking about the crucifixion of Christ and so forth, Peter said, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So that includes us in 2005. And so... The outpouring of the Holy Spirit started on the day of Pentecost, but it was to continue right on down through the church age until the Lord returned. And, of course, it has. There have, there have been times where it's gotten very low, but then there have been other times like Azusa Street and the Charismatic Movement and so forth, where a great revival has occurred and the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon hungry souls. But he answers the question. Well, the question is answered by saying it's the fulfillment to prophecy. We went on to then talk about some of the different hindrances or the signs here in regard to speaking in tongues because there are many different manifestations. It's here. you got wind, you got fire, and you got tongues. But the tongues, as we went through this, is the one consistent sign that occurs all the way throughout the book of Acts at the initial outpouring of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And we gave you two examples, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. You remember? Acts 2, obviously here on the day of Pentecost. Acts 10 was the Cornelius' household. Acts 19 was the church, or was the Ephesians. And while there were different manifestations that occurred, there was one that was consistent. There was all, there was wind, there was fire, there was praise, there was prophecy, but there was always tongues that occurred when that baptism and the Holy Spirit began to come forth. Now with all that in mind, I'd like to pick up this morning under this heading of answering objections, and let's talk about what the attitude is of other Christians today in regard to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. First of all, there are those that believe that baptism is automatically received at conversion, and so tongues are not necessary. Those that have not asked for the baptism of the Spirit, and they assume that they already have it because it comes at conversion, they're not going to receive the baptism of the Spirit, and they don't speak in tongues, and so therefore they believe their experience is correct, and since they don't speak in tongues, then tongues must have ceased. One man I was reading his book, entitled Charismatic Chaos, and he's basically being critical of anything Pentecostal, charismatic vineyard and whatnot. He was being critical, and he made this comment. He said, all those places in the book of Acts, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, all those places, he says, whenever they spoke in new tongues, that was the exception and not the rule. Now, as I read that, I thought to myself, all right, he mentioned five times Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. I think he had Acts 11 in there as well with, uh, with Paul. But he made the statement that that was the exception, and yet four out of the five times, because we know in Acts, uh, with, with Paul, he said he spoke in tongues more than, a, more than a, you all, with all those places where they received the baptism of the Spirit and tongues came forth, he was saying that was the exception, and in reality, the exception is Acts 8, which we'll look at in a little bit, to whereby when Simon prayed for people, or when they were prayed for to receive the whole baptism of the Holy Spirit, Simon saw something supernaturally occur when hands were laid on him, but he didn't know exactly for sure what it was. But I thought, if that was the exception, why would Paul go in Acts chapter 19 and make a statement to the Ephesians, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit since you believed? It was far from the exception. It's just an attitude that people have in which they are trying to deny that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was speaking in tongues for today. Another objection, and we talked about this in great detail last week, is 1 Corinthians 12.30 where Paul makes a statement, do all speak with tongues. Now I don't want to get into this one again because it's all on CD. But as you go through 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Corinthians 14, you find that there's a distinction between the gift that comes when a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit and the gift that is given to the church for the purpose of worship. During the worship service, if a person is anointed with a tongue, Paul says they should pray for the interpretation to that tongue so that the equivalent, the, the tongue and the interpretation will equal prophecy and the church will be edified. To be edified means that you understand something. If, if I were to, let's say, for example, compliment my wife on the dinner that she made, let's say, at the church, and I walked up to her and, let's say, there's nothing, nothing in the oven right now. I'm just making a point. But let's say she cooked lasagna. And I wanted to walk up to her and I wanted to just thank her for the lasagna. If I said, hon, that was a, a great dinner you prepared, really appreciate it, that would edify her. She would feel good about that. She would be, you know, uh, blessed by the statement that I made. But if I walked up to her and I began to speak in tongues to her, and I can speak in tongues any time I want to. If you have the baptism of Spirit with tongues, you know what I'm talking about. Any time you can speak in tongues. But if I walked up to her and I spoke in that supernatural tongue to her, she would look at me and say, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, what's that all about? Would she get edified? No, not at all. Now, one, let me give you one more. Look at First Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. You'll run into people, and this is these are their arguments against speaking in tongues. And here's another one. I ran into this by a Baptist minister one time over in Finley. We were thinking about putting our kids into a um, 
into a Baptist school before the homeschooling days. And when we went there and we were talking to him, the head of the school, he was telling us about his school and the doctrines of the school, and he knew I was a pastor. And he asked if I was Pentecostal, and I said yes. And he said, do you speak in tongues? And I said yes. He said, well, then we would have a problem with that because we teach the tongues are not for today here. And as I began to talk to him and ask him as to what that was based upon, he quoted me this scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when, when Paul's talking about love here. He says, verse 8, Love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. But we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And when I wanted to say to him, yes, when that which is perfect is come, it's talking about the second coming of the Lord. It's talking about the second coming of Christ when he returns. And the prophecy of Joel is connected right to that because we're talking about the end of the age. We won't need tongues. We won't need prophecy. We'll be present with the Lord in a new age called the millennium. But anyways, in the process of him talking to us, he made this statement. He said, when Paul said, when that which is perfect or complete, literally, is come, then that which is in part shall be done away, he said that's obviously the Bible. The printing of the Bible. Because Paul would have never called Jesus a that. Paul would have never called Jesus a that. And i got to admit, it, it threw me. I mean, I'd never heard anybody say that before. And I had to think about it, because I thought, yeah, Paul wouldn't have called Jesus a that. And so I went to another minister and I asked him the question and he didn't even, he didn't even have to think twice much about it. He said, well, it's talking about that perfect age. Not just Jesus coming, but the whole, the whole package, the whole, uh, hour, the whole day and hour of tribulation and the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the church and the, and the renewal of the earth and on and on. It's that perfect age is what he was talking about. And I, and right away I knew in my spirit, yeah, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about that coming age. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when, when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am also known. He's talking about seeing and knowing face to face. We'll be with the Lord. There won't be anything to hinder us. I mean, if, if the coming of the Bible was going to bring us out of the darkness and into the light, if that's what the church wants to believe, that it didn't, it didn't accomplish what we would like, because there's still a whole lot more that we need to know. There's a lot of mystery and so forth, that he yet not revealed in Scripture. I'm not knocking Scripture. But what he's talking about is that perfect age which is to come. But there are a lot of Christians that simply believe that when the Bible was printed, then tongues was no longer needed anymore, and that all of the signs and wonders in the Bible cease. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that, because Peter made it very plain in Acts chapter 2, I mean, I already read it, but he made this statement. The promise is unto you and to your children and to those that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call before the Bible is printed. He didn't say that. And you've got millions of Christians. I mean, Pentecostals, I believe the Assembly of God is the largest denomination in Christianity. You're talking about millions of Christians that have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there are millions that speak in tongues, are we going to tell all those millions of Christians that their experience is not valid for today based upon one word in 1 Corinthians 13, when that which is perfect has come, and that which is part shall be done away? Well, that which is perfect, that perfect age, has not yet come. Well, let me give you, and I guess I was on the wrong screen, let me give you what is the two most commonly held positions today, because I believe that the positions taken by the church today are creating a hindrance to speaking in tongues in itself. The two most commonly held positions are the traditional Pentecostal, charismatic, non-charismatic views. The non-charismatic view, I just already mentioned that it's not for today. But among Pentecostals and charismatics, 
there are two views. One is that speaking in tongues always accompanied the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's the traditional Pentecostal view. I didn't say all Pentecostals take that view. I said that's the traditional Pentecostal view. As you study the older Pentecostals and many, many Pentecostals today, you'll find that they take that position. And there are some charismatics that take that position as well. But in the year 2005, that has greatly changed since the 60s and 70s, when the charismatic movement began to come forth. See, basically the charismatic movement began with Pentecostalism started back in the early uh, 1900s with Azusa Street and various revivals occurred throughout the 20th century. There were a lot of men and women that were just looking for something more than what they were getting in their churches. And, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and they began to speak in tongues against the Spirit began to move and God began to bring forth great power and anointing with the preaching of the gospel and multitudes of people were saved. And it resulted in different denominations, Pentecostal denominations arising through that. But the charismatic movement came in about the late 60s, mid-60s, and it was Christians that were in the denominational system that were set up with the system and what it was bringing forth, they knew there had to be something more than that. And so there were Christians that were in the system that were crying out as they read the New Testament, as they read the book of Acts, they said, Lord, the book of Acts and the New Testament church is not the church that we've got today. And as they began to start crying out, God began to pour out his spirit upon them. I mean, some people get a little bit fed up with what goes on in the system today. I mean, I challenge you this morning. The Toledo Blade, yesterday's edition, August 6th. I mean, you can, you can, uh, if you can find it in the library, read it. Two articles on the church page, both dealing with the United Methodist Church. One of them, they're having an animal blessing service in the West End of Toledo today. It's a Methodist church, a little over 100 people, and the pastor was encouraging them to bring all their pets so he could pray a blessing over their pets. So I assume that and he talked about bringing in all different kinds of things. So I imagine you're going to see snakes and goldfish and dogs and cats. He wanted to bring their pets in and pray a blessing over their pets. I have, yeah. You know, we know that God created animals and we should have respect for animals. But I've yet to find anywhere in the Bible where Jesus held a pet blessing service. But that's what was going on. Okay? And then added to it, and I've already told you it's in the Toledo Blade, August 6th, read it for yourself. He said, if you don't have a pet, bring a stuffed animal. So he's going to have a teddy bear blessing service today. Now, I'm sorry, church, that just does not cut it with me. And if, if, if you feel I'm being critical, then feel what you want. Bless your heart, if i got to be in Jeremiah today and tell people the way it is, that's not Christianity. That's not right. We bring our teddy bears to church and pray that God blesses them? Come on. That is not what Christianity is all about. And in the same page is another Methodist minister who was kicked out of his church because he would not allow two homosexuals to become members. So he was kicked out of his church until he, until he is willing to let them become members of the congregation. Now, you call it what you want, but <laughs> I have to keep from laughing, and it's so ridiculous. Homosexuality is to be accepted or you're going to be fired, and when you conduct your services, and they made, they made a big to-do about this, why don't you have a blessing service like to whereby you can pray and bless animals and teddy bears or stuffed rabbits or whatever, if necessary, they're condoning something that's totally unbiblical and condemning something that's totally biblical. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. And some of us back in the 60s, we were just fed up with that. We didn't want that. We wanted some true Christianity. And we cried out to God and we said, Lord, show us the way, the truth. Something's wrong here. And when God showed us the truth, we just all started speaking in tongues. 
when we got the Holy Spirit. We weren't worried about what the church thought because, well, they're going to get, they would get offended at me criticizing the blessing of the teddy bears today. So I really don't care what they think about me speaking in tongues. Do you understand? I'm not interested in pleasing people, but trying to please God. So we saw things, and I hear the older ones say, they saw what we saw. Things were just totally out of line. And so, glory to God, we wanted something more. And so in the early days of the charismatic movement, it was not a big deal. But it was just, it, it was just the accepted thing, that when you answer the baptism, you were going to speak in tongues. But over the last 40 years, since the mid-60s, the last 40 years, charismatics, a lot of them, number one, never left the system, in spite of what the Bible says about you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Many of them never left, or if they did left, then they began to start forming other forms of denominational charismatic-type churches, like the Vineyard Movement and whatnot, and wanting to be respectable again by just exactly the same thing Pentecostal did, they took a lot more lukewarm position. Their position is, well, it is normal, but not mandatory for tongues to accompany the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's normal, but not mandatory. Well, I have to agree with that position by the statement that's there, that yes, I'm not going to, you know, there, I have met Christians that have asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and yet they don't speak in tongues. And I, I'm, I'm not going to question their experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to say, well, no, you don't speak in tongues, so no, you don't have it. No, I've always said as a minister for the last almost 30 years, why don't you speak in tongues? I mean, why don't you speak in tongues is really the question that ought to be asked. Now, that the answer to that is going to vary depending upon uh, the people that you talk to, and a lot of them just have some really wrong ideas about tongues and as you share with them the truth and if they really want that experience, God always gives them that experience. But a lot of times the problem is they just don't want it. Well, just because they don't want it doesn't mean then that we form a doctrine that says the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't always come with tongues. The problem is not with God. He wants to give you the tongues. The problems with the person in that they don't want what God wants to give them. And so you don't take and teach that now that the baptism sometimes comes with tongues and sometimes it doesn't because that's not biblical. You're trying to base the Bible upon the wants and desires of people rather than let the wants and desires of people be changed by what God wants. It's a very self-centered way of approaching that. Let me answer these positions real quickly. Traditional Pentecostals took as the basis of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They made it plain. They said, look, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the purpose of having the anointing and the power to preach the gospel. If you look at Acts 1.8, this is what they based it upon. We shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon us and will be witnesses in both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. The, they wanted the baptism for the power to preach the gospel. With it came the outward sign of speaking in tongues. And I've got those on the board. We've read them over and over again. I don't need to keep reading. Ephesians 6 speaks about praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Put on the armor of God and pray in the Spirit. Because to be an effective Christian in spiritual warfare, you need to be able to pray in tongues. In Jude 20, Jude makes a statement. Build up yourselves in the most holy faith by praying in the Holy Ghost. And in Romans 8, which we haven't read for a while, look at Romans chapter 8. Paul tells us that our prayer life is going to be, our prayers and intercession are going to be affected as we pray in the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8 real quick. And that, this is the traditional Pentecostal position. It's based upon what the Bible says. The position that I just mentioned a bit ago that most churches take is based on something else. And I'll read to you from one of their articles as to what they say. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking here about the Holy Spirit. And he says, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit 
Helps are literally weaknesses. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with, which, which, with groanings which cannot be uttered. He that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he's making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And you know, the one thing you have to understand is when Paul was talking to the churches in the New Testament, he assumed they had the baptism of tongues. If he ran into Christians that didn't have the baptism, he asked the question, what then do you have Acts 19? I mean, it was just accepted. And so the New Testament goes on and talks about the use of tongues, prayer in the Spirit, groanings which, which cannot be uttered, and on and on. It just They're just speaking to Christians, assuming that they all have the same gift that they were given like at Pentecost. And they don't have to qualify every single statement that is made. And so that's why there are just tons of statements made that are, that are focused around the speaking of tongues. But the position of these uh, other groups that say, well, tongues don't always come with the baptism. Their basic argument is this, that they say that Luke preferred that they spoke in... Well, let, me, let, me, let me take it directly from the screen so I don't misquote here. They say Luke is teaching us about the Holy Spirit and how he manifests himself by tongues, praise, prophecy, or something unspecified like I see. And he prefers tongues, but... He doesn't limit it to that manifestation. That's his attitude. Luke, when he wrote Acts, he preferred tongues, but you can't limit him to that manifestation. That's their attitude. Let me read to you here exactly what one uh, British theologian wrote about it. It says, The British New Testament scholar James D. Dunn traces the initial reception of the Spirit through Acts and concludes that in every instance where receiving the Spirit is described, Christians seem to have spoken in tongues. Now, this is a British scholar, and he's being honest. As he went through the book of Acts, he said, you know what, tongues is always there. The position that I've taken for many years. But then he goes on to say, the corollary is not without force that Luke intended to portray speaking in tongues as the initial physical evidence of the outpouring of the Spirit. And then he goes on to note that while Luke focuses on such tangible evidence as the Spirit's presence, he includes praise, prophecy, boldness, and if Luke wished to emphasize tongues as the necessary evidence, he would have mentioned it more explicitly in Acts 8. So what he basically does is he says, yes, you find tongues wherever they receive the baptism in the book of Acts, but if that was to be the manifestation that always occurred, then Luke would have said in Acts 8, when they laid hands upon them, he would have said they spoke in tongues. Since he didn't specify that they spoke in tongues, then that means that you don't always speak in tongues. You all listening? That makes no sense to me! The man just got that saying every time in the book of Acts that they got the baptism, they spoke in tongues, and then he turns right around and says, since we don't know for sure what happened in Acts, then, well, maybe they always don't. That's nonsense. You know, the problem to all of this is that when you limit things, when, when, you, you, when you want to say, I don't know, maybe you don't always get tongues, then you take that wishy-washy attitude. What you do is you hinder the person from receiving the, the tongues that God wants to give them because you're giving them, faith comes by hearing the word, and they're building their faith upon what you just said, not upon what the Bible said. And they get a misconception. Derek Prince one time put it like this when he was talking on the same subject. He said, if the premise is wrong, then it leads to wrong conclusions. For example... A little boy wants a Cocker Spaniel puppy for his birthday. So he tells his mom and dad he'd like to have a Cocker Spaniel puppy. And they said, okay, Tommy, we'll get you a little Cocker Spaniel puppy. And so on his birthday, they go, Tommy, come here, come here. And they let loose a little gold, gold Cocker Spaniel puppy, a little ribbon around his neck. And Tommy looks at it, and he gets upset, and he cries, and they say, what's wrong? We got you the Cocker Spaniel puppy that you wanted. 
He said, that's no Cocker Spaniel puppy. Cocker Spaniels are black. Now, it is a true statement that Cocker Spaniels are black, but they're also gold. But if you're going to limit Cocker Spaniels to black, when you see a gold Cocker Spaniel, you're going to say, that's not a Cocker Spaniel. It is a Cocker Spaniel, but you just don't have the, the truth of that because you don't have all the light on the subject. And if a minister just stands up and says, tongues don't always come with the baptism of the Spirit, sometimes you get other things, and doesn't instruct his flock by going through the Word of God and building their faith upon what it says, and they take him at face value, then they just run out and say, tongues don't always come with the baptism of the Spirit. And the Word of God is torn down. And there are a lot of ministers today that they don't want to bring up what the Bible has to say, because they don't want that in their churches. There's a stigma attached to it. It's embarrassing. Some churches, they don't want any kind of, uh, they don't want any hand raising. They don't want any shouting. They don't want any dancing. Hey, in the worship service here, if you started dancing a little bit, and you start raising your hands a little bit, and you start getting a little bit loud and shouting, I'm not going to stand back there and come, come in and say, Hold it down, people. Hold it down. Hold it down. We don't want to turn the neighbors off. They might think we're Pentecostal. Now, I've seen some that are fleshly manifestations. <laughs> and Jim can remember one time, I don't know if he brought them or what, but we had some people that came into uh, the church back in the days when we first started, which was uh, above a hardware store. And it had wooden floors. And I don't know, we had, had some people come in. I don't know where they were from. But they sat there and... and we're waiting upon the Lord, you know, for the Spirit to move. And he just started on the floor, just really, really loud. Do you remember that? <laughs> and I thought, that ain't the Spirit, that's the flesh. I mean, because we weren't getting edified, it was confusion. It's like down in southern Ohio when I ministered, there was a church down there where one of the guys went, and he asked the question as to why one wall, one spot on one wall, seemed to be plastered up a little newer than all the rest. And they said, well, that's uh, for the Holy Ghost when it comes. And when the Holy Ghost would come, you know, they'd go on out there. It's been a long time ago, but I believe they'd go on out, and the Holy Ghost would kick the devil out of the church. And they'd go on out there and just start, bam, 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 kicking away at the wall, kicking the devil out. And then they'd patch it up for next service when the Holy Spirit's going to kick the devil out again. There, yeah, there's, there's fleshly manifestations that occur. I understand that. But if the devil can't get you to resist tongues by being lukewarm and indifferent, then he's just going to move upon some people to go to the extreme to whereby they think you're crazy. Paul even talked about that. And you'll get and you'll get to the point to whereby I don't want to be associated with those snake handling, wall kicking, feet stomping Pentecostals. There's no quote dignity in tongues. Well, I got news for you. They didn't they didn't have that problem in the book of Acts. And the reason why is because they knew that God had given them tongues for a very good reason. Let me keep going so I make some progress in this message. I gotta raise a question. Why don't why wouldn't you want to speak in tongues? I mean I have asked people this, people that I work with, and I've asked them, why don't you speak in tongues? And generally the comment has been, well that's that's for you uh, more mature Christians. And I said, you know, the way you get mature is by the baptism of the Spirit. That's what he comes for. You know, years ago, friends, it was called a second work of grace. It was called a, a deeper work of sanctification. If you get into some of the older Methodist teachings and so forth, back in the earlier parts of, of the 20th century, people like Bevington and so forth, they had, they had something going on in their life that was not typical denominational Christianity. And they called it a second work of grace. They called it praying through. They called it sanctification. And it was really the baptism and the Holy Spirit. Terminology was a little different. But, but you have to read that and you have to, you have to say, you know, they had it. And they hungered and they thirsted after it. They wanted it. And that's what they got. But why, why would you not want to speak in tongues? Number one, tongues is the natural manifestation of the Spirit's baptism. Anybody argue with me on that? I mean, we've just said throughout the book of Acts, every time they were prayed for, they got it. I mean, you don't see it in Acts 8. 
When Paul received it uh, later on, he did not, it doesn't mention it, that when Ananias laid his hands upon him, but we know that Paul spoke in tongues because later on, uh, Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 14, I speak in tongues more than all. But anyways, it's the natural manifestation of spirit baptism. It constitutes a valid form of worship to God. Worshiping in tongues is the Holy Spirit supernaturally anointing you to worship Him and praise Him the way He wants to be worshipped. You know what I just said? You know, worship is, is worship to God. We shouldn't try to come up with what we like for worship. We should go back to what the Bible says about what God moved upon them to come up with to worship Him because He wanted to be worshipped in, in a way that He prescribed throughout the Old and New Testament. I mean, Michael didn't like the way David was worshiping the Lord when he was dancing. But you know what? God loved it. God did not mind a bit that David was dancing and worshiping the Lord the way because his heart was in it. And what he was doing was he was leaping for joy at the great victories that he had received. But just try to do some of that in a lot of churches today and you're going to be told, tone it down. Tone it down. I won't say it's tone it down. Let's join in. If it's not in the flesh, if your heart's really in it. Thirdly, the purpose of the gift is to worship God, not spiritual leadership. What do I mean by that? I mean that, listen, tongues are a sign of the baptism. But it is, it is not an attitude that you develop to whereby you say, well, I speak in tongues, so I'm better than you are. That's not where it's at. Tongues are not a sign of elitism, like you're something special because you speak in tongues. No, it's a gift that's been given. And it's with great humility that it's been given. I'm no better than anybody else just because I speak in tongues. But the ability to speak in tongues, God gave me so that I could continue to grow and mature in my Christian life. And he gave it to every Christian for that reason. But that doesn't make me better than anybody else. The ground's level up before the cross. And tongues brings our prayer life into a higher, stronger level. Let me let me uh, skip over. Well, I should talk about this because basically the two positions I stated. When you get men that say tongues don't always come with a baptism, what it does is it, it creates a hindrance to speaking in tongues because they develop number one a negative attitude and confession. The first thing is the negative confession. Not all speak in tongues. Once you confess that and you say, so I don't speak in tongues because not all speak in tongues, you're being snared by the words of your mouth. The baptism has to be received by faith, Galatians 3.2. And faith is based upon the word. So the moment you say, well, I don't, I don't speak in tongues because not all do, you're hindering yourself from that manifestation. If you're waiting for a feeling, which some people do, let me ask you a question. Do you wait for a feeling to pray in English? Do you wait for a feeling? I mean, if you know you should pray for something, has anybody ever said to you, let's pray about this? And somebody replies back and saying, well, I, I don't have a feeling. I need a feeling. Can you imagine someone saying, I sure hope that Pentecostal evangelist comes in so I can pray in English again. <laughs> no, that's the feeling. It's not a feeling. There are times where you're not going to want to feel like praying in tongues. But as you pray in tongues and make yourself pray, you'll find that the great benefits will, will begin to come forth. People have an attitude of indifference. Well, I don't see where it's any big deal. Well, with that attitude of indifference that says, I don't see where it's really that important. I think it seems. I know people that are spiritual and they don't have it. You know what? You're not going to hunger after it and pursue after it until you do get it. Look at Luke chapter 11. I think I'll give you this and start to close because I see you're getting tired. Look at Luke chapter 11. You're not going to get the manifestation of speaking in tongues without really wanting it. Without really wanting it. If you don't want it, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He is not going to force it on you. If you don't want to grow and mature as a Christian, you know what? You won't grow and mature. 
If you don't want the gifts of the Spirit, you know what? You won't manifest the gifts of the Spirit. If, if you're only going to get what you want to get. And the Bible says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for right things, for righteousness. And so you can have an attitude that, well, I really don't want it, then you're not going to get blessed. That's the bottom line. If you're satisfied with mediocre religion instead of New Testament Christianity, you're not going to be blessed like you should be. In Luke chapter 11, he's talking here about a man that is wanting to bless his friend. Verse 5. Which of you, having a friend, should go go unto him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is in a journey and he's come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within will answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is shut, my children are in bed with me, I cannot rise and give thee. You know, it's one of those things where there's a hindrance to get this man to bless him with food. And rather than pressing through that hindrance, most most today that hindrance would be not everybody receives tongues when they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you're probably going to be one of those that isn't going to receive. And most would turn around and say, you know what, I got the baptism and, and God didn't give me tongues. It's God's fault. Like this man here. I'm sorry, I'd love to give you food, but my friend, he said no, so it's my friend's fault. My friend just won't get out of bed. So it's his fault that you're not getting fed. See, that's nonsense. God wants us to be able to pray in the Spirit so that we can, as we'll see as we progress on, edify ourselves and intercede for others and pray according to the will of God. He wants us to have it. He's not going to force it on you. If you don't want it, he's not going to force it. But if you want it, and you go after it, you'll get it. You will get it. He says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he's his friend, but because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as much as he needs. His importunity, I mean, his persistence. I mean, there's some things that if you really want what God says, then you need to go after it, persist after it, and go after it and hunger and thirst after it, like Elisha, one of the blessings of Elijah. I say to you, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Everyone that asks, receive. He that seeks, finds. To him that knocks, it shall be opened. If you want it, and you persist after it, you're going to get it. If a son asks for bread of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? No. He's going to give you what you want. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? I mean, look at look at where we're at. The author is Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. It's way in the beginning parts of the gospel. It isn't after the Holy Spirit's been poured out, and he's been inspired here to make this statement concerning teaching the question that they raised about learning to pray, and he says, the Holy, our Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to them that really want it and persist after it. And when you stand up and you say, well, not every Christian is going to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit with tongues because some get other things, they get the fruit, some get feelings, they see great light, some people get an immense amount of joy, some people get love, the tongues are not for today because it ceased. And all those excuses, you're going to get that person to whereby when they don't receive tongues, they're going to sit back there and, and say, well, it just must be God's will. But you know what? If you're one that says, I want that experience. I want my prayer life to be enhanced. I want to have the power and the anointing of the gifts of the Spirit. I want to be edified in my prayer life. I want what they have. Ask yourself the question. The 12 spoken tongues and Paul and 120. Why would you want what they got? I want what they got. I want what they got. I mean, we want everything else the apostles got. 
Power to preach the word. Power to raise the dead. Power to heal the sick. Power to perform miracles. I don't want their tongue, though. You can have that, Peter. I don't want that. Let's see if we got something better than that. I don't need your tongue, Peter. I got this. I got a book. Now, praise God for Scripture. I'm not knocking that. You know what I'm saying. But as I have read, and I've read several books recently on the baptism of the Spirit, it is that constant same attitude coming out. There's just a stench in the nostrils of a lot of Christians that tongues are something that are not really that important. And you know what? That is the devil. Trying to rob you of something that's very important to your Christian life. By the time I just keep running, going another hour and I get into it more in detail. But that is nothing more than the devil trying to rob people of an effective prayer life for others. And that's all I'm going to say this morning. You think about it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of speaking in new tongues, that was the apostolic sign, and it's we've got to remove those hindrances so that people can be open to speak in tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. Well, I'll pick up on this and we'll continue on next week. I'd like you to bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I don't believe that you would give your children a serpent for an egg if they ask for an egg. I don't believe that you're so mean and cruel that if they ask for bread, you'd give them a stone. And I believe, Father, that just as in the early days of the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit baptism was poured out, they spoke in tongues. And they knew, they knew by the Holy Spirit that that was the fulfillment of prophecy. And they didn't look at it as a stigma. They didn't look at it with disgust. They didn't look at it like, I asked for bread and got a stone. I asked for an egg and I got a serpent. They didn't look at tongues like serpents and stones. They looked upon it as a, as a great supernatural blessing that came from you for the purpose of edifying the church when interpreted and for the purpose of enhancing their prayer and praise life. And I pray that you would open up the hearts and minds of everyone here present or those that might be hearing this tape that there'd be a deep searching from within and asking the question as to, well, if it is that much of a blessing, why don't I have it? If they don't have it. And open up their heart and give them a hunger to yield up their tongue. And when they ask for that supernatural language that goes with the baptism, that you'll anoint them as you have millions of others with a, with a language that will encourage and edify and strengthen and bless their prayer and worship life. Father, bless the word to our hearts, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a, all of you, you have a nice week. God bless.